0: and welcome to Prescription Advocacy. I'm Arielle Truster.
1: And I'm Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murse.
0: And this week we get to talk about reproductive justice and being pro-choice and how that intersects with medicine. And I am personally very excited.
1: Me too. And I'm excited to think about the ways in which policies that were introduced during the pandemic are directly and harmfully affecting women. One of
0: the main themes of our podcast has been the ways that we care for people and the way that that caring has been curtailed during the pandemic. So Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos talked about uh, the inability of people to visit loved ones in long term care facilities. And now in this episode, we're talking about the way that these kinds of restrictive policies affect pregnant women, women who might be going through a pregnancy loss. Um, people who might need help with breastfeeding, or or, or who are having postpartum depression—it's it's a little bit heavy.
1: It is, and these are issues that existed prior to the pandemic. And one of the things that you'll hear as soon as we start speaking with our guest today, who's Dr. Genevieve Easterbrook, an obstetrician, is that she doesn't think of herself necessarily as an activist. But in fact, when we're working in healthcare or in other areas of, um, you know, community. Care of any kind, including the teachers that we've spoken to, including anybody who is uh, working in in legal services or 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 anything else, we've also spoken to people working in prisons. Uh, it it is activism because we're we're talking about protecting people's well-being. We're talking about how we change policy, how we make sure that we bring it back to caring.
0: yeah, and you know I wonder, I know, for example, when I went to journalism school a really long time ago, you know, 20 years ago, there was this total taboo on the idea of a journalist also being an activist or an advocate. And I can only imagine there's a lot of that very similar stigma in medicine. But one of the things that we're doing here is really trying to highlight that that advocacy that people have maybe come to accidentally or feel reluctant to call themselves advocates when they really truly are, and this guest truly is. So it was really wonderful to speak with her.
1: All right. Well, with that, let's start the episode
0: enjoy the conversation
1: so welcome oh thank you so much
2: um i think of myself a little bit as being an accidental um activist because it's not really something that i, I set out to be um and i i didn't really think that people were actually listening to me so <laughs> In, in some ways, it's very exciting, but in some ways, it's actually a bit scary to um, to realize that, you know, I I do have this power of my voice um, to hopefully you know, change people's minds about particular things, um, but also just to make people aware of some of the issues, particularly relating to um, women's reproductive health, reproductive choice um, and also to pregnancy
1: itself. That that is the perfect way for us to start our conversation because we really debated for a long time what we should even call this podcast and like we are doing this as Ariel always says off the side of our desks but tell our listeners who you are and what you do and then tell us about your accidental activism.
2: So I'm a maternal fetal medicine specialist in London, Ontario. Um, I'm an assistant professor of obstetric gynecology at Western University um, and I'm actually a researcher as well as a clinician um and as a researcher it seems funny to be somebody that's considered um you know part of the activist community although i think with COVID, that's really changed a lot um so i i look after um pregnancies that are labeled as high risk although um i i don't love the label of high risk for pregnancy because pregnancy is really an ever-changing condition um and you know being labeled as high risk also you know, in and of itself is a bit stigmatizing um, and makes people worry that there's something wrong with them. Um, so, I look after the sort of the full spectrum of, of complicated pregnancies, um, both maternal and fetal issues. Um, and uh, my, my real passion actually is research in how the, the, um, the placenta um, forms and how it interacts with the maternal immune system and how it interacts with the maternal cardiovascular system. But uh, you know, as an educator as well, um, being that, that I, I also um, teach medical students and residents and graduate students, um, it's also important to put the medical knowledge into the context of the, the social context with, um, with our patients. Um, and so um, you know, I definitely um, like to contribute to um, that part of things as well.
0: So what are the issues that keep you up at night what are what are the things that you feel you've become an accidental advocate about uh, when it comes to obstetrics or maternal health care?
2: So I, I think one of the big ones is reproductive choice um, and you know we should just start with the heavy the, the heavy topic first you know everybody um, especially I think with the um, with the Amy Coney Barrett Um, confirmation hearings in the u.s and hearing about people wanting to overturn roe versus wade um, you know that that also is a concern for those of us in canada Um, although you know we certainly um have had um much more liberal policies around that um but you know some of the things that, that i've found really distressing um recently are that um here in london there's a there's a fringe group it's a um a Really, uh, sort of a radical anti abortion group that's been putting um, anti abortion flyers in people's mailboxes um, with very graphic images of dismembered fetuses. Um, They've also been putting those up on billboards um, where um, people can see them. Um, And fortunately, um, you know, many members of our community have taken it upon themselves um, to react to this. in a, in a meaningful way, including um, one of our um, city councillors who actually started a petition to get them removed um, because they don't meet advertising standards. The thing that bothers me about this is, um, you know, within, within my patient population, I have many um, patients who have made a difficult decision to end a pregnancy, um, especially later in the pregnancy, in the mid-trimester, um, because of um, severe fetal anomalies, um, uh, because of aneuploidy, um, and, you know, these are actually very wanted um, and desired pregnancies. Um, and these people, um, you know, have come to a decision which, you know, is really a, a loving decision for a baby that, that otherwise wouldn't do well. Um, and it's, it's very upsetting to them. Um, you know, I've seen people write their stories on um, other forums in terms of um, their reaction to seeing these ads or even people who for instance have had a stillbirth um, and are presenting to hospital um, for an induction or something like that and seeing um, you know seeing these these types of um, you know paraphernalia laying around you know, there's there's also a man that stands in front of the um, in front of the entrance of the hospital um, every Thursday with a sign that says he's praying to end abortion and again I just think that that's a really um, inappropriate and upsetting thing for patients um, seeking
0: care at the hospital to have to see
2: yeah. so those are those are things that keep me up.
0: Yeah I'm right there with you I know um, in Ottawa at the Morgenthaler Clinic Um, they were finally able to get the bubble law enforced, but there's still a group of regular people who harass, uh, patients going into that clinic from as far away as they're allowed to do it. But it is very upsetting. And, uh, I know, you know, my best friend is a midwife and I also know like a lot of those images are incredibly manipulative and not representative of what actually happens during an abortion. Um, are you concerned that this is a slippery slope? Are you concerned about the legal status of abortion in Canada or restrictions that might be placed on you as a doctor?
2: So, I mean, I, I think with our current federal government and I know I know that health care is is provincially based, but, um, you know, in terms of in terms of criminal law. Um, you know, things are federal. So I think, you know, in terms of our current government, um, I don't think that, um, you know, making abortion illegal or even enacting any sort of abortion law is something that, um, that would happen. But, you know, there were certainly um, mumblings about that um, under the Harper government, you know, with trying to slip in some, um, some changes to reproductive choice um, through you know other omnibus bills and that kind of thing, some some pretty what I would consider pretty dirty tactics there. Yeah, so I, I mean I don't I don't think we should get complacent.
0: I absolutely hear what you have to say about complacency. Um, I know one of the slippery slopes. I remember going to a protest about a private members' bill. It was under the Harper government. It had to do with fetal personhood, trying to make it a separate crime if a pregnant woman is murdered to you know that the murder of her fetus is considered a separate person. Then of course this is one of these slippery slope. Um, issues that we're always on guard for. Um, what about access to abortion in Canada or in London, where you work?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I know that that access to abortion is, is very inconsistent across the country um, in terms of um, both uh, modalities of seeking an abortion, you know, medical versus surgical, but also um, to what window in pregnancy um, it's offered as well. Um, so you know in southwestern ontario we're we're very fortunate in that um, you know our pregnancy options program uh, is is actually a referral center for the entire region. so the access I think from a regional perspective here is is really very excellent, and patients um, you know f- from early on have um, access to either medical or surgical termination of pregnancy and you know the whole availability of miphiGimio has been has been wonderful and as an aside um, with the access to Mifigai Miso, um, you know, I've seen some wonderful programs, you know, for instance, in rural and remote areas um, in northern Canada, um, in, uh, on Vancouver Island, for instance, where there previously was no access to abortion at all. And now this can be done, um, you know, in a, in a woman's own home with, you know, guidance over the telephone, for instance, from a physician um, or um, another, another person who is, is able to provide that. But, you know, with with respect to surgical termination, um, we have the full spectrum of, of options here in terms of, again, you know, medical induction or surgical termination. Um, but, you know, that's certainly not something that's accessible in a lot of places. And I mean, I mean, understand that on the East Coast, particularly, um, that's been a really um, significant fight to keep, you know, the, the one and only clinic that's not hospital based open.
0: In New Brunswick. if I'm- Yes. They can, yeah, and it just closed. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah that's really scary time. But in terms of your own work on the flip side and helping women with their pregnancies and that um, side of reproductive choice, what are some of the major issues that you have concerns about?
2: Well, I mean, there's I think one of the big things is misinformation about um, about pregnancy itself. Um, you know, that, um, you know, interventions are harmful. I mean, there, there was this, you know, study that exploded onto social media um, earlier this week that, um, you know, erroneously linked um, epidurals and autism. And, you know, there are all of these really sort of data mining studies that are done. And I feel like a lot of them end up shaming women for, um, for choices that they make for their own bodies, um, you know, they're they're always looking for an answer in terms of you know, does doing this during pregnancy cause autism? Does doing this you know during pregnancy co- cause asthma? And you know, some of that's around investigations during the pregnancy. Um, some of that um, you know things like ultrasounds. Um, some of that is um, because of mode of delivery. And you know, one of one of the things. You know, has been really challenging is the you know the demonization of cesarean section as a mode of delivery, um, and uh, and and really challenging conversations with patients um, you know who have a medical necessity for a cesarean section that are so afraid that they're going to be causing their their child long term harm.
0: There's a certain amount of pur- puritanism or <laughs> in the uh, in a lot of these conversations. I know uh, I certainly felt a lot of that pressure when I was pregnant and then also with the struggle I had with breastfeeding and just the whole spectrum just seemed very, very fraught and very hard to make decisions
1: about. Yeah. You know, uh, in my first year as a family doctor, one of the things that I learned from one of my patients who um, had just given birth and she was nursing, but having a hard time. And um, one of the the big struggles for her was that um, she felt that there was so much shame associated with saying that she was going to switch to formula and so it was a it was a um, unexpected kind of reversal of, of the conversation that i was you know thinking that i'd have to have with my patients where i actually i had to say like it's okay you give yourself permission everything about parenthood is going to be not what you expected so you give yourself permission to do what you need to do breast is best is part of our trying to get people back to nursing as opposed to the years, the decades of being pushed to use formula. But the but the idea that the woman can't at some point for her mental health or for physical reasons say, now I'm going to do what is going to be really best for me and for my baby and for my family, like that giving permission. It's the same whenever I have a conversation with women about, you know, their their plans for childbirth and and you know, are they gonna have an obstetrician? Are they gonna have a midwife? I said, like every mode of care that we have to offer is amazing. And you get to make those choices and you're going to, you know, have your plan and it's maybe not going to go according to plan. And
0: then we're going to deal
1: with that. And, you know, just giving that permission for people to make their choices for everything in, in their reproductive lives.
2: Well, and that, that's exactly it because, you know, I I think about a lot about reproductive autonomy and that that includes things like mode of delivery. Um, And I I am a strong proponent that, um, you know, if a if a woman comes and says that she would like to have a cesarean section without a medical indication, I think that that is her choice. Um, and certainly our the SOGC has come out with a statement that, that does support that. Um, you know, but but again, you know, that that is still somewhat of a controversial idea in some communities in terms of um, you know, a patient being subjected to, you know, quote unquote unnecessary surgery. But, you know, women can choose to have cosmetic surgery, for instance, um, you know, they, they can make the choice to have, um, you know, augmentation mammoplasty or something like that. And and so, you know, in my mind, I think, well, you know, people have surgery that isn't medically indicated um, very frequently, whereas, you know, you can argue that, you know, particularly for a patient who has been through, you know, uh, for instance, a previous traumatic birth um, for, um, you know, for patients that have, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from a sexual assault um, or who are um, genuinely uh, tocophobic, so people who are, are just morbidly afraid of, of labor, um, that, you know, having, a, you know, an uncomplicated elective cesarean section can actually be a very healing thing for them. And I, I've seen that um, on numerous occasions where I've had a patient, you know, who've ha- who's had a, a previous traumatic uh, experience, whether it's with birth or something else who um, you know has had a very healing experience and comes back for their for their post-operative visit, feeling you know nothing but um, gratitude for being able to have a choice um, and feeling really
1: safe in that environment. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: um what I'm hearing a lot is you know what we used to call the pro-choice movement is now really about reproductive justice. So taking a look at the full spectrum, from whether or not to become pregnant to carry a pregnancy to breastfeed to give birth to have more children i mean another issue we talked about in a previous episode is uh women who want to have a tubal ligation and are told they have to ask their husbands or that they're too young or that they might change their mind. i mean if you believe in choice and bodily autonomy you believe in choice and bodily autonomy period right but I hear so many times, and uh, from women who were unable to make that choice. Um, and I even knew a woman in university who literally started a zine called "Ask Me About My Tubal Ligation" because she was <laughs> in her mid twenties and was actually able to convince doctors to do this for her, and it was very, very difficult.
2: It's such a fraught issue because I mean, you think about something that that truly is, you know. A, a person's choice. You know, there's not the same kind of stigma against against a man um, seeking a vasectomy. Um you know, but on the flip side, you also hear um, these terrible accounts of women who have been coerced into having tubal ligations, particularly in the indigenous community. So, I mean, there, there are both sides um, to that conversation in terms of, um, you know, people having their choice actively removed from them because of, you know, a really um, paternalistic and uh, colonist type attitude about, you know, I think you have too many children.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's totally true. And then there's also, I have a lot of transgender patients and uh, the gatekeeping within medicine for uh, for my trans-identified patients to access either a hysterectomy or an orchidectomy uh, until very recently in the time that I've been a family doctor, they'd have to go through a long process of psychiatric evaluation and then CAMH would have to, approve and then we could apply for surgery. Now we still have a whole lot of gatekeeping. And I've had patients who are trans identified, who so female to male, and they, they want to have a hysterectomy because part of what is uh, traumatic is monthly bleeding, right? Like that just, it, it, it needs to it needs to not happen, and um, so there have been actually some amazing gynecologists in Ottawa who have been willing to do the hysterectomies even before we have you know official approval for it to be covered by OHIP on a transgender basis, but just simply because it is creating emotional distress, why wouldn't a person be? be eligible to have a hysterectomy where they could have it. If it was simply because they had heavy periods, right? Like that's, that's, um, you know, a medically, um, allowable reason why, why isn't just the gender identity also considered uh, a reason that, you know, you don't have to go for extra evaluations and extra paperwork and extra, um, approval by the ministry of health. So yeah, it's all politics of the body.
2: Yeah, I, I agree so much. Um, I mean, one of one of the other things that um, that I'm very passionate about in my in my own practice, and again, um, like to communicate to people about is is um, women who use drugs during pregnancy, um, both um, prescription medications for medical conditions, um, and you know you see all of these, you know. Black box warnings about using different medications, but especially women um, who are either using illicit drugs or who are, are on um, opiate re- replacement therapy, and how much um, stigma there is, and how difficult it is for them to access um, care that's that's um, you know where where they're treated with dignity and where you know people are actually culturally competent to um, to the the barriers that um, that they may have
1: yeah there's uh, have you I don't know if you've ever worked up north but when I was a medical student and a resident, I went up to Nunavut and um, just in terms of in, in terms of people's um, other barriers the um, the the racism and the systemic discrimination for uh, indigenous people where um, women were forced to fly into. Iqaluit to give birth and leave their their families and their supports weren't allowed to travel with them. And, uh, young women, uh, end up living in, um, in housing for quite a while because they want to make sure that they get them out of their remote communities and, you know, into a centralized area. And, uh, just it would never happen in the south, and it would never happen to a non-indigenous woman that we would say that the only way that you can give birth is this, and you have to be on your own, and um, yeah, just all the all the things. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's it's been really great that um, there are there are a number of indigenous midwifery programs now, um, including some in southwestern Ontario. I don't I don't know what there is in the in the Ottawa area. Um, but, um, but they're really trying to return birth um, to their own communities, um, or at least have somebody you know to accompany them for a hospital birth um, who is able to give them the experience that um, that they that they want. Um, and it's it's really exciting to see these partnerships taking place um, and you know, just becoming more educated in terms of um, uh, indigenous ideas around birthing um and uh and and what's really important there
0: absolutely and it's also uh, you know one of the casualties of covid was you know there was at least one hospital in montreal that insisted that women had to give birth completely alone without their spouse even being present i think they later had to retract that it was at the height of a covid outbreak but you know i have a colleague who had a difficult pregnancy and uh her husband was able to be there for the birth but the entire induction process, hours and hours and hours, she had to be alone before she was officially in labor. He couldn't be there with her. And I just can't even imagine how hard that would have been.
2: No, it's it's really in, inhumane, I think, um, you know, to, to separate people from planned birth support person, you know, whether it's their partner or their mom or their doula or, you know, whoever their accompanying person is, um, because it is, you know, not... Not just the, um, you know, the the joy and the the wonderful emotions around the baby being born, but you know, a lot of the really scary and painful times during labor when you you would like to have a familiar face with you, um, and you know, things things have been really challenging in in that regard. Um, you know, our hospital has been. Um, you know, I think pretty good compared to some other places, but, you know, some of that's because we've had the benefit of having relatively low case numbers here. Um, so, you know, it's, we've, we've always been able to have one birth support person, um, with a patient early on in the pandemic. Um, if a patient was having a cesarean section though, because of the lack of PPE, um, We, uh, we weren't allowing partners in for cesarean sections, even elective ones. Um, And that was, um, that was really heartbreaking, Um, you know, because, you know, it's, it, it changes the dynamic of, you know, the, the whole experience of a birth, you know, because a cesarean section is still a birth, but suddenly, you know, without the partner being there, it felt a lot more medical. So that that was tough but that didn't last long. Um and so so we we're back to the same ways of having the partner in the in the ORs as we were previously.
1: You know, Ariel earlier this week um published a little paper about how we have disrespected children throughout the pandemic and we've really disrespected women as well throughout the pandemic and every time we have a policy it's like that the knee-jerk reaction is to create a policy that excludes caregivers from accessing their their loved ones in long-term care or um, their family members who have disabilities who are in congregated living settings and we we don't allow partners to be with women in labor and we I, I know I had a, a patient who is in tears of joy when I told her that her partner could come with her with their newborn baby for the visit. And she had had a C-section. So, you know, she's not even supposed to be carrying stuff. And, uh, you know, she hadn't up to that point been allowed to have anybody come along with her to help her and be there. Like all of these policies. Do you think it's, it's a product of who is creating these policies? I don't know who's making the decisions, but I'm, I would hazard a guess that it's not, women it's certainly not children it's not seniors um like in a hospital when they said well there was no ppe and therefore you can't have your partner present for a c-section who makes that decision
2: i think part of the trouble is um there are so many levels at which these decisions are made um particularly in a in an academic hospital setting Um, because, you know, you have the corporate people um, and then you have the people from infection prevention and control, and then you have the managers of all of these different units. And um, I mean, the challenge with a birthing unit is that we are not just a birthing unit, but we're also, um, you know, we essentially run our own emergency room, which is our OB triage. um, And we're also a surgical service. Um, And we're also, to some extent, a critical care unit, because, you know, we have very sick women who, you know, have severe preeclampsia and, you know, are on magnesium sulfate infusions. And we have women with cardiac disease and we have all sorts of other things that can really um, just turn at a moment's notice. Um, And and so when some of these decisions were being made, um, a lot of us didn't really know who who to talk to um, if, we, if we didn't feel that, um, you know, these changes were fair. Um, and I have to say, I mean, our, our obstetrical team has been pretty good about advocating, you know, at the, at the decision-making levels of saying, you know, I know that these are the blanket policies for the rest of the hospital, but these really can't stand, um, you know, in, in our unit. And so, you know, some meaningful change had been made. You know, for instance, um, we have a clinic called the Fetal Development Clinic, which is which is one of the clinics that um, that I work in. And that's a clinic where um, families are referred because of a suspected fetal anomaly. And in the early weeks of the pandemic, um, partners were not allowed in that clinic. Um, And so, you know, I was speaking um, to partners who are sitting in the parking garage or um, at home um, on speakerphone while we're doing multidisciplinary counseling um, with, with a woman that's just been told that there's something wrong with her fetus. And it just seemed so wrong to have to do that because it's so exclusionary of the partner's experience of sometimes grief or anger um, when they have to be there by themselves, you know, the the person on the other end of of the phone. So, um, you know, we fairly quickly, um, you know, made the change to be, to allow partners in that, in that particular clinic. Um, And there are some extenuating circumstances where we, we um, have people who um, are permitted to have a, a support person with them. Um, particularly people with um, really significant mental health concerns um, or developmental concerns um, who really, really need to be accompanied. But in these unexpected situations, you have a patient come, for instance, to triage um, with decreased fetal movement, and you diagnose a fetal demise. Um, then, you know, we've had to go through hoops to get the, the partner up to the, the triage to 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 talk to them or you know suddenly we're saying you know you need an emergency cesarean section because you know you're you're actively bleeding um so you know this is a challenging thing and we're working we're working towards getting basically a routine support person allowed um in any of these ob triage uh visits but and i, I don't want to speak at all for the for the people who are actually making um you know these these pleas to our to our administration but it's it's difficult. Um, you know, I think to make them understand that, you know, we're not just asking for, um, extra, um, privileges. It's really, it's,
0: you know, it's, it's part of a family unit. Yeah. I think that's a, a good way to, to start wrapping up our conversation because I know what's driven a lot of Neely's work is, is, um, advocacy for care and for caregiving and that seems to be a theme that's come up repeatedly in this podcast during the pandemic uh you know we hear sort of empty statements about how you need to take care of your mental health but if institutionally our institutions are damaging people's mental health by excluding them from important spaces to be with their loved ones it's contributing to the problem in a big way so Thank you so much for your advocacy to try to fix that as much as possible, even in your own workplace.
1: Thank you for speaking to us today and um, keep up the good work.
2: Oh, thanks. And you, you as well, both of you, um, it's been a real pleasure um, talking to you. It's been a real pleasure to um, listen to the podcast um, and learn about um, some really exciting dynamic people um, who are just doing some incredible work. I was, I was, incredibly moved um by the um the episode where you spoke of prison and abolition and um and just you know that that really opened up a lot of a lot of uh, feelings in terms of um the injustice of of that system and so uh, i think it's really important to have these
1: conversations it is and and we're learning so much like i i feel you know i always say after as well it was an honor to speak to you but like it really is it's i i am learning a ton and it's like a treat every time we have a conversation we don't know where it's going to go but it's it's always amazing so truly thank you
0: you've been listening to prescription advocacy co-hosted by dr neely kaplan mirth and ariel troster produced by alana stewart you can visit us on twitter at rxadvocacy or on our website at rxadvocacy.ca where you'll find links to the people that we spoke with and the information that they provided and also a full list of credits. Thank you for listening.